welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Secret of the Samurai Sword by Phyllis A. Whitney. Volume 8, Chapter 18, Down the Stairs. Celia stood for a long moment, staring in astonishment at the steep flight of stairs leading down into the shelter. The gusty wind whipped her skirt against her legs and blew her light hair about her shoulders. It also blew the clouds away from the face of the moon, and she could see clear down the stairs to the earthen walls and floor of the small chamber below. Only the upper covering of the shelter appeared to be made of protective concrete. The stairs were of wood, and the room below had been carved from the firm red clay of the Kyoto earth. Why did the door open now, she wondered, when it had always seemed to be locked before? Had she been mistaken all along? and Sumiko, too, when she had tried the key recently at Celia's request? Or could it be that their continued attempts had jiggled loose whatever had stuck, so that now at last it could be opened? Yes, that surely must be it. Swiftly she glanced around. No one stood on the veranda of the Sato house. Sasuko was home, but out of sight, and Tani out at the dancing. In a little while, Gran and Stephen would be coming back. Somehow Celia didn't feel a bit tired anymore. She had to go down those stairs and see what was there in the bomb shelter. And she had to do it now, quickly. Then she would really have something to show Stephen when he got home. If she waited, she knew well enough what he would say. Huh, so you were too scared to go down there. And he'd push right past her and make the secret place his own. Well, he won't she told herself firmly. There wasn't a thing to be afraid of, with bright moonlight shining down the shaft. She would be the first one down, and then he'd have to respect her courage. Nevertheless, she stepped carefully onto the top step, testing it with her foot to make sure that the wood had not rotted in all the years this place had been closed. But the step held firmly and didn't seem to be in the least rickety. One cautious step at a time, clinging with her hands to the steps themselves, since there was no rail. She started down. It seemed a very long way to the bottom. The air had the dank smell of earth about it, but with that wind blowing behind her, the staleness had rushed out quickly, and the air wasn't stuffy and dead as she had expected it to be. When she was only three steps down from the top, two startling things happened at the same time. The moon went abruptly behind a dark patch of cloud, so that the stairway and the room below vanished from sight as if they had been suddenly erased, and at the same instant something live and horrid and furry brushed against Celia's bare hand as it scurried past her on the stairs. She screamed wildly and reached for a stair rail that wasn't there, and went plunging into space. The ground must have been about ten steps down, and it was a long fall. The impact stunned her for a moment, and she lay shivering with shock where she'd fallen, the earth hard-packed beneath her, pain streaking through her body. But she could not think of the pain for the moment. She could only think of that live thing that had brushed against her. Had it been a rat? And were there others down here as well in the pitch darkness? She had to get out quickly. She mustn't cry or scream. She just had to find the stairs and get out. But now as she moved, the pain became more insistent, 
and she knew it came from her right ankle. When she tried to stand, pain stabbed sharply, and she couldn't put her weight upon that foot. Nearby, something mewed gently in the darkness, and she cried out in relief. The furry thing hadn't been anything unknown and horrible after all. It had only been the ginger cat leaping past her down the stairs and ready to do some exploring of its own. Come here, Neko-chan, she called, laughing now in her reaction and holding it tightly as it came willingly to her. Its fur felt reassuringly soft and warm, and it was wonderful not to be here alone in the darkness. I've got to get out of here, she told it. Maybe if I crawl on my knees. But the thin blade of pain streaked up her leg again and brought tears to her eyes. Had she broken her foot? Gran and Stephen would be home soon. Perhaps they'd come around this way to enter the house, and she could call to them and let them know where she was. But even as she was thinking hopefully of their return, a heavy gust of wind whipped across the garden above, sending a puff of cool air down the stairs. And to her horror, the door slammed firmly shut. What faint light had remained in the opening against the sky was gone, and it was blacker than ever here in the shelter. She caught the cat in her terror and hugged it until it mewed and wriggled out of her grasp. What was she supposed to do now? With all that wind, Setsuko wouldn't have heard her first scream, and now no one would hear her down under the earth. Gran would miss her as soon as she got home and worry. Perhaps she would go to the Satos and then to the police, but neither she nor Stephen would ever think to look for her here. Celia knew she had to crawl up the stairs somehow and had to escape from the black, frightening pit. Painfully, she managed to get onto her knees, but she felt so trembly and scared that the effort was doubly difficult. From this position on her knees, she could reach out hesitantly across the cool earthen floor, afraid of what she might touch in the darkness. Something soft lay beneath her hand, and she felt for it gingerly. There seemed to be a wad of cloth or clothing here. Perhaps in the days when they had expected to use his shelter, the Satos had put clothing or bedding down here in preparation. She pulled herself along on her knees another few inches and then waited, choking back her tears, until the throbbing pain subsided. Once more she reached out cautiously. She must be near the stairs now. If she could take hold of the steps, they might help her to pull herself up to the place where she could open the door. How long would she be able to breathe down here in this hole now that the door was closed? Though strangely enough, it did not seem stuffy as yet. Perhaps the Satos had arranged for some means of ventilation. Again she groped with one hand, but instead of stairs she touched something that felt hard and stiff beneath her fingers, yet brittle too, as if it might crush if she leaned upon it. Her fingers felt over the strange contours, smooth hills and valleys, almost like the shape of a human face. She felt the thing again. Yes, there were slits for eyes and humpy eyebrows above. There was a great beaked nose with slits for breathing. In spite of her hurt and fright, excitement came to life in her. Before she touched the mouth, she knew how it would be. She knew the tortured twist of those lips the frenzy of 
suffering it would reveal, and knew what she had found. This was the mask that the samurai had worn when he came to haunt the garden. Now she swept a hand out all about her, until she found the helmet. Everything was here. This was the place in which he hid his costume for the strange masquerade. So it was the ghost who held the key to this strange place, and who had used the shelter in recent times. But who was he, and why had he played this trick on Gentaro Sato? Suddenly startled, she became aware that a faint glow had begun to glow in the far wall of the shelter, in the wall, not on it. She eased herself to a sitting position, cold with new dread. Even as she stared, the light grew brighter and sharper, and she knew that it came from the beam of a flashlight. She did not scream again, although her throat tightened with the effort to hold back sound. She could see now that there was a small passage cut through the hard clay earth, large enough for a man to crawl through. Someone was creeping through it now, pushing a lit flashlight ahead of him. And who else could it be but the samurai? Something sharp and bright shone in the light, a pointed tip of metal emerging slowly from the tunnel. As she watched in frozen fascination, the shining blade of a sword emerged from the hole until the thing was completely in sight with the hand that held it. A moment later, the flashlight turned fully upon her, blinding her. She cried out, shielding her eyes with her hands. Sirya-san! cried an alarmed voice. And a moment later, Hiro was kneeling beside her, looking down into her tear-stained face in dismay. Hiro! she cried in relief. What is happening? he asked. How are you coming here? I fell off the stairs and hurt my foot. The door blew shut, and I thought you were the, the samurai ghost. Hiro stood up and shot his beam toward the door above him. He's not locked, he said in surprise. She looked up and saw what he meant. Someone had put a hand bolt inside the door, and this must have been what held it shut when the key had seemed to work. All the time it had been locked from the inside. Must be I am forgetting to lock door. Hero said, and now you hurt foot, and all is for me to blame. He put a hand on each side of his head and rocked back and forth as if it hurt him to think. Please call somebody, Celia begged. Gran must be home by now. He hesitated a moment, then put the sword he carried beneath the stairs, folded the mask and clothing together, and wadded them out of sight beside the sword. Leaving the flashlight behind for Celia, he ran up the stairs. The cat came out of a corner and leapt out the door behind him, having had enough of bomb shelters. This time the door stayed open and Celia could hear Hero calling, could hear the welcome sound of Stephen's voice in answer. A moment later, her brother scrambled down the stairs to kneel on the ground beside her. Are you all right, kid? He asked in a voice that broke unexpectedly. You had a scared... We've been looking everywhere for you. He slipped his arms under her gently. Will it hurt too much if I lift you? She shook her head. Now that he had come for her, the pain didn't matter so much. Hang out around my neck, Stephen said, and we'll have you out of here in a jiffy. Don't be afraid. Everything's all right now. She waited for him to scold her and tell her 
how dumb she was, but he only sounded kind and a little worried. Hero put a sling of cloth around her foot and held it so that it wouldn't dangle loose and hurt her. When Stephen carried Celia into the house and laid her carefully on the couch of the living room, Gran took one look and hurried to the telephone to call a doctor. Sumiko was there, too, because Stephen had gone across the alley earlier to look for his sister, and Sumiko had come back with him in alarm. There was the usual mushi-mushi over the phone, and the phrase, Chato mate, wait a moment. That was used several times. Then Gran got through to the doctor. Now, for Celia, everything seemed to run along in a blur. Tani was home and Setsuko up. They made squealing sounds of dismay and ran about, getting in each other's way. Hiro apologized and apologized, though nobody but Celia really knew what he was apologizing for. The American doctor came and looked at her foot and said he thought it was only a sprain and nothing was broken, but it would have to be x-rayed, and she had to keep off it for a few days. Between Stephen and the doctor, they got her upstairs, and Gran tucked her under the covers of her futon bed. When the doctor was gone, Celia asked Gran urgently to send Hero upstairs. Not Sumiko, Hero. She wanted to talk to him, now that the pain wasn't so bad. She just had to talk to him alone. If Gran had questions, she was wise enough as usual and save them for later. She called Stephen downstairs and sent Hiro up. He came in and knelt on the tatami near where she lay and looked at her anxiously. I am so sorry, he began again, and she hushed him quickly. It wasn't your fault, Hiro, but it was you in the garden dressed as a samurai, wasn't it? You were the ghost. He nodded sadly. Please, you do not tell my grandfather. But why did you do it? Haltingly, the story came out. It had all begun because Hiro had a belief that his father would not have destroyed the samurai sword, even though Gentaro Sato had ordered him to do so. To Hiro, the famous sword was a family treasure and should be recovered. Stories of the past had always held his imagination. For all that modern Japan meant so much to him, he could not bear to think the sword of his father's was gone forever. In his growing up years, he had always played the game of searching for it. While the last American family had lived here, he had thought of a place where the sword might be hidden. In the late hours of the night, he had climbed the bamboo fence into the garden of this house, while everyone was asleep, and he had tried to dig near the pine tree of which his father had been very fond. But he had found no sword and it was like looking for one grain in all the sand on the beach. The sword might be anywhere. Only one person saw him that night. There was only the thin light of a small moon. But his grandfather had been wakeful and had made out a hazy figure in the garden. Gentaro Sato had taken the sudden notion that the figure that hovered near the pine tree was the spirit of his ancestor. Hiro said his grandfather had seemed happy the next day. His belief in the vision had seemed to do so much for him. But now, to Hiro's dismay, he watched and waited for the next visit of the spirit. Of course, Hiro couldn't risk climbing the fence repeatedly, but a plan began to evolve in his mind, and he thought of another way. 
He remembered the tunnel his father had dug from the bomb shelter to the hill in the back of the house. His father had felt that the shelter had to have two exits. Then if the entrance were destroyed, those hiding in the earth could still crawl through the tunnel and escape into the woods on the hillside. The woods! Celia cried. Then the tunnel entrance must be up near Fudo Mio, where I saw the print of the bare foot on the earth. Hiro nodded. I'm not wishing you to go there to find tunnel. He went on to tell her how successful the masquerade had been. Through his uncle at the movie studio, Hiro had obtained a discarded samurai outfit and had hidden it in the bomb shelter, and he had bought a mask. The door at the top of the stairs was locked, but Hiro had managed to pick the lock and had fastened a bolt across the inside, so no one could come down and discover his secret. Now he could appear briefly, be seen by his grandfather, and then disappear mysteriously into the black shadow of the shelter door, with no one being any wiser. But all had not gone well, and Hiro had done some secret suffering. What had seemed a simple way to make his grandfather happy began to take on difficult aspects. Gentaro Sato worried because the samurai did not carry his sword. He had begun to feel that the spirit had some message for him, and he became upset because he could not understand what was wanted of him. But you found the sword, didn't you? Celia asked softly. That was the sword I saw you carrying up the hill tonight, the one you brought into the shelter. No, Hiro said, tone sad again. That sword is only a play sword. He had meant to hide it in the shelter and perform one more masquerade. He knew it was growing dangerous to appear because the Bronsons were curious and Stephen might catch him at any time. Celia remembered suddenly. But, Hiro, you were with Stephen the last night the samurai appeared, the Obake night. I don't understand. Hiro gave her a twisted grin. That was my friend Michio, he said. So you do not be suspecting I asked Michio to play samurai. He's a trusting friend, and he does not tell. Seems very funny when we plan this. Not so funny later. So that was it. But what were you going to do with the play sword? Again he explained. One last time he would dress up and appear. When his grandfather saw him, he meant to salute him with the sword and then disappear. He had hoped this would settle everything. His grandfather would feel that the samurai had recovered the sword of his father's and that all was finally well. Then the spirit would be at rest and never appear again. But now this is no good, Hiro said, because I open door and forget to lock. And I fell down the stairs, Celia said. But Hiro, I think it'd be best of all if you could find the real sword and give it to your grandfather. He looked at her sharply. Sadesu, this is best, but how will I do this? You are knowing something? I think so. I think you're right, and your father didn't really destroy the sword. But if you don't mind, I'd like to tell Gran and Stephen and Sumiko about all these things, too. It doesn't really matter if they know, does it? The secret has nearly come to an end. Hero bowed solemnly and agreed. It did not matter. 
He did not think he would ever try the make-believe again. So Gran and Stephen and Sumiko came upstairs. When they were there, Celia asked Sumiko to get the two small boxes from the drawer of her dresser. The black lacquer box with the gold pine tree on its lid and the little brass box corroded by verdigris. Quickly she told them the truth about the apparition in the garden, so Hero wouldn't have to struggle with it again. That's all over, she concluded, giving Stephen no time to break into questions. But there's still one thing, the sword. I don't think it was destroyed. I think Mr. Sato ought to have it back. It might make him feel better, and I think I know where it may be hidden. All of these things point the way. Chapter 19 Night of Daimonji Celia showed them the picture of Fudo Mio, who was also represented by the little stone man on the hill, and then there was the ginkgo leaf and the drawings of the dragons, which Mr. Sato now had. Stephen stared at her in surprised interest when she told how she and Sumiko had gone digging at the foot of the ginkgo tree one rainy evening. When Celia opened the little brass box, Hiro drew in his breath in surprise. Yes, those were the Manuki from the famous sword. They were works of great art, and it was splendid to recover them. I kept thinking, Celia went on, that if they were here with the key buried in this box, they must point to the bomb shelter. The Manuki stand for the sword. The key stood for the bomb shelter. Do you suppose? Stephen cried. But Hero was already on his feet and halfway out of the room. Stephen ran after him, but on the veranda he paused and looked back at his sister. If there's anything there, we'll bring it to you first. After all, you're the one who was smart enough to figure it all out. And off he went, leaving Celia blinking. Sumiko went to the veranda rail where she could watch the boys as they climbed down into the shelter. Gran, sitting on a cushion close to Celia, reached out and held her hand for a moment. Little did I know I was going to have a Japanese mystery right in my own house. Are you comfortable, honey? Celia nodded, eyes bright. The throbbing in her ankle hardly mattered now. Stephen gave me some credit, she murmured wonderingly. Did you hear him, Gran? What a funny one you are, Gran said. Don't you know he has always thought that you were plenty smart? But he'd feel foolish showing it. Boys are like that. He was pretty upset when we couldn't find you. The waiting seemed very long, yet it couldn't have been more than twenty minutes when Sumiko, who had gone back and forth from room to veranda several times, turned to them in excitement. Here they come, she cried, and I think they found something. The boys came racing up the stairs, each one carried in his hands a long, earth-encrusted object. Just a second, Gran cried, before you go sprinkling dirt all over our clean tatami. She went into her room and was back in a moment with an old copy of the newspaper, Mainichi. She spread the newspaper out on the floor. Stephen told how they had tried digging in one or two places. Then Hiro had suggested the space under the stairs as being a likely spot for hiding something. So there they had dug, and these two long, narrow parcels 
for what they had found, buried not too far beneath the surface. The outer wrapping was Japanese oiled paper, and it had held up very well in the earth of the bomb shelter. Hiro got his piece unwound first and sat staring at the strange-looking object in his hand. It bore the shape of the upper part of a sword, guard and all, but it was completely encrusted with some dried blackish stuff, the surface of which could be picked off in bits with the fingers. Stephen's piece looked like the lower end of the sword, but it too was covered with thick black stuff. Stephen lifted it to his nose. I think it's tar. Your father must have covered the whole sword with this stuff before he buried it. Hero nodded. This is to protect blade so no rust destroys. Tar can be removed. Sure it can. It'll take a lot of work, but I'll help you. Maybe we can heat the stuff off to soften it. Maybe kerosene will help. Rand, do you suppose? Rand shook her head, smiling. Not tonight, dear. It's a big project, and once you get started, you won't want to stop. When it's clean and the manuki have been put back in place, Hero, you can return the sword to your grandfather. Hero's face did not brighten. All the excitement had gone out of him. He gestured sadly toward the two pieces. Blade is broken, he said. When all Anam goes from Japan, my father breaks the blade. How am I to show this sad thing to Grandfather? It's best to show him, Grand said. You mustn't try to pretend any more. After all, your Grandfather ordered the sword destroyed completely. He should be glad to get any of it back. Hero was not so sure, but he left it at that. He and Sumiko said good night and went home across the alley. Hey, kid, how are you feeling? Stephen asked Celia, leaning over to tug at a fair strand of her hair. I'm fine, she murmured, and she really was. What a wonderful story, Rand said. There could be a whole chapter in my book about the samurai ghost and the finding of the sword. Unfortunately, I can't use a word of it. Why can't you? Stephen's tone was blank. Rand and Celia looked at each other, understandingly. Celia knew the answer, even if Stephen didn't. Almost everything could be told to Gentaro Sato, all about the finding of the clues, the digging of the bomb shelter, the discovery of the sword, but they could never, ever tell him that his own grandson had impersonated the family samurai. That one thing had to be left to the old man's belief. Perhaps it was the only thing that would compensate for the breaking of the sword. Now the spirit would never appear again and Mr. Sato would be sure it was at rest. It would be too upsetting for him to know the truth. Thus, it could never be printed in a book. Never mind, Grand said. I'd rather live a mystery than write one anyway. But why do you think Hero's father did these strange things? Celia pondered. That's beyond understanding of someone who's not Japanese. But I've talked to many people who lived through the end of the war and who were terribly afraid of the coming occupation. They didn't know what we would be like. Thousands of people buried the few valuables they had clung to through the war in secret hiding places when the soldiers came in. But we wouldn't have taken them, Stephen said scornfully. How could they know that? 
In a few weeks, of course, they were digging things up again, realizing that our soldiers weren't going to harm anyone. Perhaps because Gentaro Sato had ordered him to destroy the sword, Hiro's father didn't want to tell anyone that he hadn't obeyed. But he had to hide it so it wouldn't fall into what he regarded as enemy hands. She paused in her thinking out loud, and softly Celia took up the story. Maybe Hiro's father had a feeling, even then, that he might not return, Gran. So he left these things behind to point the way. But he wouldn't want to point too easily to the sword. So he made the directions in two steps. That way, he could leave the first clues under the false bottom of the lacquer box. Maybe his family knew the box trick, and he expected them to find the things and understand what they meant, though outsiders wouldn't. He couldn't know that his family would move out of this house and leave it to the Americans, and that the lacquer box would be left behind in a storeroom. Graham nodded. It could be that way. We'll never know for sure. Apparently, it took an American girl with a taste for mystery to find the possible answers. Stephen whistled in agreement. I'll say it did. You really figured things out, Siria-san. But next time, wait for me so you won't hurt yourself falling downstairs. He was looking at her with affection, and Celia felt her own warm love for her brother surge up anew. She understood about Stephen now. Anyway, show's over, he said, and yawned widely. No, it's not over, Celia said. It can't be over until that sword is in Mr. Sato's hand, and we know how he feels about it. More than a week passed, and the night of the Daimonji bonfire had come before that was possible. The x-rays had shown no serious damage, and Celia was up again, her ankle taped and fairly comfortable. It would have been terrible not to be up for this occasion, because Gentaro Sato had sent them a very special invitation. From the veranda of his present house, there was an excellent view of the biggest bonfire, and he had asked Celia and Stephen and their grandmother to do him the honor of visiting him that evening. Something else was to be accomplished as well. Stephen and Hiro had worked hard at cleaning and polishing the sword. Gran had found a craftsman who had replaced the tiny gold and silver dragons in their place on each side of the hilt. The pieces of long steel blades shone when they caught the light, and only Celia shivered when she looked at them. She could not forget the history of this sword. It had been used in fighting. Perhaps it had even taken human lives. In her eyes it was a terrifying thing, and she did not like to touch it. Stephen said the blade was very sharp, and she'd better stay away from it, or she'd be sure to cut herself. In the end, however, it was decided. Through a conference attended by Hiro and Sumiko, it was Celia who must bring the sword on the night of Daimonji and present it to Gentaro Sato. The prospect frightened her a little because she was fearful of what might happen when she gave the broken sword to Mr. Sato. Grant thought he ought to be told the story of the sword's rediscovery first, but Hiro shook his head over that. His grandfather was still weak and worried, and the one solid thing in this world would be the sword. Let him see it first and let it come to him, in a sense, from America. That would be a good thing. So that evening, when they dressed in their best and went across the alley to the Sato house, Celia carried the pieces of the sword, carefully wrapped in a green silk furoshiki. 
Sumiko met them at the door, and Celia stared in astonishment. Tonight her friend wore a lovely kimono with peach blossoms scattered across the cloth, and a gold-colored obi tied in the traditional manner above her waist. Only the ponytail was American, and it bobbed saucily as Sumiko went down on her knees to greet them with a deep bow and welcome them in Japanese. Her eyes were dancing when she raised her head, and she jumped up in a very un-Japanese manner. How do you like me? she cried, and turned all the way around for their approval. In the background, her mother hovered, and Hiro's mother, and Mr. Sato's daughter, all smiling in delight over Sumiko's transformation. You look perfect, Sumiko, Gran said. A kimono becomes you. I don't know if it does or not, Sumiko looked straight to Gran's eyes. I wouldn't wear one all the time, but I've been thinking about the things you said, and I had a long talk with my grandfather the other day. He listened, as I never expected he would, maybe because I never gave him a chance before. I told him what you said about my needing to be both a good American and a good Japanese, Mrs. Bronson, and I think he's trying very hard to understand that idea. So I'm wearing this kimono to please him tonight. There was affection in the look Grand gave her. Pleasing someone else is probably the first step we all have to take in order to please ourselves. To like ourselves, she said. Sumiko flashed a bright smile and padded ahead of them upstairs at her split-toed white tabby. Her walk was as demure as that of any old-fashioned Japanese girl. Up the steep stairs, after her went Celia, uneasily carrying the Furoshiki bundle in both hands. Jintaro Sato sat before his painting things, but when Sumiko went down on her knees to bow to him, he stood up to greet his guests. Celia thought he looked pleased and a little proud as his eyes fell on Sumiko. Then he was bowing to Gran as Sumiko introduced her. Zaputan cushions had been set around the big room of mats. Everyone sat down. Only Hiro, Celia saw, was even more nervous than she, and his eyes never left his grandfather's face. Tonight meant a great deal to Hiro. When the inevitable tea had been brought and the small cups passed around, as well as the little flower-like cakes that Celia liked, Mr. Sato made a brief speech of welcome, which Sumiko translated. Then Hiro could wait no longer. I tell him now! he said. I tell him Syria-san is bringing him gift. He spoke in Japanese to his grandfather. The old man turned his benevolent look upon Celia, smiled, and waited. Now the moment had come, Celia found her hands trembling as she turned back the silken folds of the furoshiki. Were they doing the right thing after all? Would the sight of the sword be too great a shock for the old man, coming suddenly like this? but she could hesitate no longer. The moment was here. She let the last fold of cloth fall away from the gleaming broken blade and the handsome gold-inlaid hilt of the sword. Gentaro stared for a moment, face expressionless. Then he bent forward from the waist, taking the hilt in his hand, picked up the broken upper section of the sword. Very carefully he turned it about, examining the manuki in recognition. He knew plainly that this was the samurai sword that had come down through his family, the very sword whose destruction he had ordered so many years ago 
when Japan had reached her most terrible moment in history. In grave inquiry, his eyes rested upon Celia, and she spoke anxiously to Hiro. Tell him, Hiro. Tell him quickly. Gran lifted her teacup, pretending not to watch, while Hiro spoke, and Celia knew that was best. They all sat sipping hot, bitter green tea, while Hiro told his grandfather the story in lengthy Japanese. Once the old man exclaimed and glanced at Celia, and to her relief, she saw the corner of his mouth lift in a faint smile. Hiro, with gestures, had come to the place where Celia had fallen down the stairs. But Celia knew that not all of the rescue would be related. The fact that Hiro had come through the tunnel into the shelter would play no part in this story, for no suspicion of the trick that Hiro had played must ever cross his grandfather's mind. When it was all told, the old man sat quietly for a moment, and Celia saw that his eyes were moist with tears. Undoubtedly he was thinking of his son, who could not bear to destroy the sword, even at the order of his father, who he revered. Then he spoke a few words to Sumiko, and she went quickly to the cupboard and brought out the stand with the sword sheath upon it. Gentaro Sato picked up the sheath and dropped the broken blade into the bottom of it. Then he placed the upper part of the sword in the sheath as well. Now it sat upon the stand looking whole, with a handsome hilt protruding at one end. Hiro translated the grave words of thanks Gentaro Sato spoke to Celia. My grandfather says it is good that the sword is broken. Japan lives in friendship now. There is more honor in clasp of hand than stroke of sword. Gran went impulsively to kneel beside him and held out her hand in the American fashion. Gentaro Sato took it in his and bowed over it, combining the eastern and western salute. He spoke to her, and this time it was Sumiko who translated excitedly. He says, thanks for coming, Mrs. Bronson, and he wishes to know if your gifted and clever granddaughter might be permitted to come to him for painting lessons in the Japanese manner while she's here in Kyoto. Celia gasped, and Gran said, how wonderful! Tell him how grateful we are, Sumiko. There's nothing I know that would please Celia more. Before Sumiko had finished, there was a scampering on the stairs, and up came little Johto, the two Mrs. Satos, and the daughter as well, with Kimi and Kiku following. They were all bowing respectfully to Mr. Sato, then chattered to him like so many birds. Sumiko jumped up. It's almost time for the bonfires to be lit. We have to all go out on the veranda so we won't miss what's going to happen. Everyone stood back to let Gentaro Sato go first. Then his guests followed, and finally the members of the household. The gallery was narrow, but when the Zabutan were brought, they could all sit in a line, stretching the length of it. Celia found herself next to Gentaro Sato, with Sumiko on her other side, Gran sat on Mr. Sato's right, with Hiro beyond her. Below spread the lights of Kyoto, cupped in the dark, reaching arms of the hills. Then, with a suddenness that was startling, a switch was thrown, and every light in the city went out. The night was black velvet, sky and earth and city, all one vast expanse of darkness. 
High on the slope of Mount Daimonji, wood had been gathered for days. It was piled in a pit dug in the shape of the Japanese character Dai, which means great. Now near this pit appeared the flare of a torch, followed by another false flare or two. Suddenly there was a tremendous burst of flame on the mountainside as the entire bonfire exploded into the great flaming character. Celia drew in her breath sharply. The sight was so strange and beautiful. Mountain and city and sky were invisible. There was only that vast burning character floating there in space. Stephen pointed to where other bonfires had now been lit, but none was so great or impressive as this one. Celia glanced at Gentaro Sato beside her and saw that his attention was fixed, not upon the bonfire, but upon the garden across the way. Though there was no need now to try to pierce the darkness, to look for the strange figure of a ghostly samurai. How would he feel, she wondered, now that the figure would never appear again? Would he be satisfied because the sword had been returned to his proper place of honor? What she saw in the face of Gentaro Sato startled her. He was staring at the garden as if in recognition as if something moved there that her eyes could not see. As she watched, he bowed his head courteously in the direction of the garden, and it was as if he were saying sayonara. She strained to see if there was anything there in the shadows, but nothing was visible to her intent gaze. Yet the old man seemed pleased and happy, content. Sumiko had not seen. She whispered to Celia, So now Daimonji is over. But there are still more festivals to come, and there's a month of summer left. I'm so glad we're going to be here together, Celia. Celia slipped her hand into her friend's and squeezed it. She didn't need to put her own feelings into words. A whole month was left, and there were still so many things she and Sumiko could do. And there were her painting lessons with the grandfather to enjoy. Kyoto, Japan, she thought dreamily. It's now, and I'm here, and I'll remember it forever. The End We hope that you've enjoyed this Ubula audio presentation of The Secret of the Samurai Sword by Phyllis A. Whitney. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. The opening and closing themes were borrowed from a well-known Japanese TV show called Meisani Koku. The opening theme is called Kanishimi Yo Konichiwa, which translates as Hello Sadness, and was originally recorded by the J-pop singer Yuki Saito. The closing theme was entitled Ashita Hareru Ka, which means Will Tomorrow Be Sunny. This was composed and sung by the J-pop artist Akaso. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook, or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you. <laughs>